Welcome to the Defiant Spirit, a podcast about discovering meaning, purpose, and resilience in the most challenging, difficult, and darkest moments of our lives through what my teacher and mentor, Dr. Viktor Frankl, called the defiant power of the human spirit, that spirit that is within you, that spirit that is calling to you, that spirit that is you. I'm Dr. Baruch Halevi, and this is the Defiant Spirit, and now, on to our podcast. be here from the Defiant Spirit. Thanks for tuning in. I'm going to shift gears today. If you've um, never joined my podcast, normally I talk about things, meaning, purpose, and resilience, teaching the work of Viktor Frankl, um, a Holocaust survivor, which will be relevant today, on how to discover deeper meaning in our lives, greater purpose for our lives, and cultivate, cultivate resilience in our lives. And I guess that's what we will be talking about, but I want to talk about it through the lens of current events and developments in Israel. I steer clear of politics. I steer clear of geopolitical issues. Um, I am both American and Israeli, so I have a horse in this race. I am Jewish, of course. Um, This hits home on many levels. What I'm going to be talking about today But I normally steer clear of these issues because they can be so complicated. They they are so complicated. There's certainly tremendous amounts of history and politics and religion and just big topics that get all mushed up into one pot. And then we're supposed to sift through it like it's clear and simple. And so I usually steer clear of these issues because A, they're complicated. B, because I'm no longer a rabbi. I mean, I have the title rabbi, but I don't represent any the Jewish people. I don't um, represent an organization other than my own, which isn't Jewish, or a synagogue. For six years, I was a rabbinical student and um, rabbinical intern. And then for 15 years, I was a congregational rabbi in two different congregations. And I retired in 2015. I no longer felt like it was my profession, my calling. I just didn't feel, um, you know, like like I said, called to that work anymore. Have uh, made made Aliyah, moved to Israel with my family. That means becoming an Israeli citizen, which maybe I'll talk to you more about. Lived there for a few years. Lived there for years prior to that, two different times. So very much um, identity bound up in Israel, bound up in being American, bound up in being an Israeli and an American Jew. And uh, when I was a rabbi, it was much clearer when these things would happen. I would, ar- I will argue these things have never happened. And what just took place uh, last week, last, less than a week ago on Saturday, is is unique but when things like this would flare up before i felt very confident and comfortable in talking in speaking in, in yelling you know if you joined us before you know i'm an enneagram 8 i teach the enneagram an ancient personality typing system enneagram 8s are the challengers uh, my wife calls me an eight hole on a bad day on a good day i'm a challenger and so i don't usually talk about these things i tend to yell about these things even if i don't raise my voice it still feels like yelling to a lot of people and it was wanted, it was needed, it was expected. Did everybody love it? No. Did most people love it? Yes. And they needed it. And I believed it. I did it because it was right and true and it's my way of moving through the world. I don't have that anymore. I don't have this clear platform, this pulpit, this um, responsibility to necessarily speak to a constituency that has paid me and hired me and engaged me and comes to me to hear about these things. And in fact, it's the opposite. For the past five or six years, I've been formally guiding people of all faith, religions, no religion, traditions, cultures, backgrounds. I work with somebody who's Muslim. I work with people who are, you know, international citizens or elsewhere outside of the U.S. I work with people who are not all colors, but certainly black people and white people. I work with certainly people who are uh, mostly not Jewish, maybe 20% 20% of my clients are Jewish, and the rest are either secular, most of them are secular, non, or non-affiliated or agnostic, or um, 
uh, many Christians. I grew up in Nebraska. My friends there are and were continue to be Christian. I'm still good friends with them. I um, say a good percentage of my clients are Christians and many of them religious Christians. They come to me and sometimes to work through some of their religious issues. As I say, I tend to be as good about bringing Christians back to Christianity oftentimes as pastors are. I, I believe deeply that you um, should explore your roots before you go on to other pastors and I help Christians get back to their roots. So I say all this because you know, my audience is diverse. My, my mandate has changed. I don't know my place. I'm just sharing with you honestly. When these things erupt and arise, and this platform, my blog, to, um, you know, to either share these things with my constituents, my clients, my listeners, or to burden them. And, and I don't know. So I just want you to hear how confused I have been especially over the past week. This has been going on now for six or seven years since I retired as a rabbi. The identity of leaving behind being a clergy member, of being um, a representative of a religion. I've heard this from pastors and priests too. It's really complicated. It's really difficult. You know how many people tell me, no, you're still a rabbi, right? I know what I am. I don't need people to kind of push me into that or tell me to that. I... I just want you to hear these identities, these roles are, are incredibly complicated. And so when something like this happens, I just don't know. And, and also, you know, lots of Americans don't care. And normally I think in some ways that's to be expected. You know, we can care until we can't. We can barely care about our local issues, about our national issues. This, however, is different. And it's why I'm speaking on it. It's why I've been grappling with it. I've been holding myself back from talking about it. Finally, I wrote a blog on what happened in Israel, what Hamas did. Um, some of my feelings, though I didn't share too many of my feelings, I think you could feel them in the blog, but I tried to make it as relatively objective as possible. But I want to share some of my feelings in this platform because it's a it's just better suited for me to share feelings in a podcast or video than it is writing. I have a hard time writing. I'm, I struggle with writing. I've written two books. Each one was like pulling teeth for me. It's hard for me to contain my self in writing. It gets too big too quick and also to convey the emotion versus while, while simultaneously carrying a reader on a journey. I've always had a much time easier time doing it in public speaking roles. I don't have that anymore. I, I mean, I speak in you know organizations and businesses periodically, but I don't have a, a weekly rhythm expected place to go and deliver sermons. I think I was pretty good at it. So this is the most logical platform to share. And I've had multiple people say, B, why aren't you sharing what you're feeling? Why aren't you sharing some of these struggles and these thoughts that are coming up for you this past week? I don't know. It's messy. But that's the point. This whole thing is messy. This whole thing is uncharted territory. This whole thing is difficult for so many people in so many different ways. So that's some of the backdrop as to, you know, a little bit about what's going on in my head this past week. And I haven't even gotten into the, the raw emotion, sadness, shock, horror, um, anger, all kinds of things. As I say in the blog, unless you're living under a rock, you um, have heard about what took place in Israel proper on Saturday morning Israel time. This was unprecedented what took place. So let's talk a little bit about that. Then I'll share with you again my identities because I have multiple identities, how they all get brought into this conversation and mangled in this conversation and then um, you know how it relates to certainly to other people to you this is not just about me I think I represent a lot of Jews I think I represent a lot of Israelis I think I represent uh, a fair amount of Americans but certainly not everybody as we'll also talk about and I'll have to do this in multiple podcasts over the coming days and weeks um, because I really don't want it to go too long and I could talk for the next six hours. I won't do that to you. Okay, Saturday morning, um, the Jewish holy day of Simchat Torah. Lots of people don't know that that's still the high holy days. Even lots of Jews don't realize that's still the high holy days because for most people, the high holy days are Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And those are the first 10 days of the holy days. Rosh Hashanah kicks off the holy day season. 
Yom Kippur is sort of the pinnacle, but it doesn't end there. Then five days later, Jews like me, um, as an aside, I don't have a religious affiliation. I'm an ordained conservative rabbi. I was a rabbi of conservative synagogues, but dismayed, disillusioned, and really just didn't find my rhythm or groove in that movement, or frankly, any movement. I like to say that the synagogue I don't go to is an orthodox one, and that I'm a spiritual mutt. Um, I draw best practice from wherever it comes from. These days, far as much from Buddhism and, and Hinduism and shamanism as I do from Judaism, but at the end of the day, I'm a Jew, and I practice Judaism on my terms and my way. And um, why am I telling you all this? Oh, because you know I celebrate Judaism in my way. So um, we do build a sukkah. It's one of these. Uh, it's an outdoor sort of a hut with a thatched roof. You're supposed to live in it, eat in it, sleep in it for eight days, and that begins the holiday of Sukkot. And then the holidays all culminate with the the the. Um, holiday of Simcha Torah. Simcha means joy, which is quite ironic. And Torah is, is the Torah, the five books of Moses. So it's a day of celebration after having gone through this long journey of the few weeks of the Jewish holidays. Well, bottom line was lots of Jews in Israel, and Israel's 80% um, secular, so it's not a heavily religious state. But people celebrate holy days there in their own way, which is one of the reasons why we moved to Israel and I loved being there. Because even the secular Jews were having their version of Simchat Torah, of this rejoyous celebration, down in the desert. A lot of teens and 20-somethings at a rave in sort of the spirit of Simchat Torah, though obviously not traditionally religious, doing their thing. Peace, love, joy. Um, religious Jews were in the midst of a of both the Sabbath and a holy day. And so they weren't using technology. They were, you know, sort of off the grid, which I think contributed to some of what happened, though it can't be solely responsible. And then they um, were getting ready to go to the synagogue. And amidst all of that, by now you have read that an unprecedented and highly orchestrated attack came from, um, as they say, land, sea, and air unprecedented because in the past when Hamas, the terrorist organization, but also the elected governing body of the Gaza Strip, the Palestinian people in the Gaza Strip, came through in an unprecedented coordinated attack. 1,500 terrorists, that's what they were, that's what they are, that's what they will always be, um, regardless of the protests, which we'll get there. These are not freedom fighters. These are not um, militants, you know, these are not representatives of a group that wants peace. This is an organization that lives for one purpose, as stated in their charter, to annihilate the state of Israel and to exterminate Jews. Well, they set forth to do that on Saturday. So they came, they cut holes in the fence and I'll tell you about the fence. They, I think, came through terror tunnels, which do exist. I didn't, haven't heard much about them, but I think it was just so secondary to the other ways they got in. Usually that's the only way they can get in, but they cut holes through a dozen or 20 places, uh, holes in the fence um, between Gaza and Israel. And most of all, they came in, they tried to come in through the sea. I have heard that they were unsuccessful, and that was one of the only bright spots of all of this is that more mayhem and murder would have come, but the, US, the Israeli Navy intercepted many um, terrorists coming vis sea, the sea. But they did get in for the first time ever through mechanized hang gliders, motorized hang gliders, and um, there's some video of it that's just horrific to see them coming in and what they did afterwards. Israelis were caught off guard, and there's going to be so much explanation to do. I mean, if you thought 50 years ago, the Yom Kippur War, when the militaries around Israel stormed Israel and took them by surprise on the holy day of Yom Kippur, which happened almost exactly 50 years ago to the day, about 10 days prior to this, 50 years ago, um, do you think there was explaining to do for that? This one is unprecedented because our technology has come so far, because Israel is known as the world leader in security, in, in, in cybersecurity, and in security in general. High this is not a fence. It's not like some um, 
chain link fence. This is a high tech fence. They know when a bird lands on it. So they're gonna have a lot of, I think, probably disturbing realizations when they start digging and discovering how this happened because I have to believe cyber terror was involved, maybe even espionage, who knows at this point. All we know is it did happen. And not only was it, um, not only did the security mechanisms fail, but even the response after that, once they knew they failed, for the military and the police to show up in the south of Israel, and I'll explain that to you as well, was unprecedentedly tragic, slow, and non-existent. It took hours to get there. So, so many things are off. The bottom line is Hamas succeeded in penetrating Israel proper. Now, for those of you who don't know, and I don't have a map in front of me, but you can easily pull it out, Israel's a very small place. My son, Aviv, was saying, how big was, is, is Israel compared to Colorado? Since we live in Colorado, we had left Israel in 2019 and moved to Colorado, where we currently reside. Um, and he didn't have a frame of reference. So I told him, I was guessing, but I think it's probably accurate. You can fit two Israels side by side in Colorado. I mean, Israel's eight hours, something like that, from um, the Golan Heights down to a lot, top to bottom. And 45 minutes side to side, but if you get rid of the West Bank, you're talking minutes. It's like 15 miles wide, 15 miles wide if you get rid of the West Bank, which is why they're not getting rid of the West Bank. So bottom line is, if you look at the map of Israel, in the middle, the Merkaz, the center of the Israel is where about 80% of the uh, population is, the Jewish population. And then you have the West Bank sort of in the middle and the upper side of Israel. And then the lower half, which is mostly desert below Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. So think of Jerusalem and Tel Aviv as side by side, you know, 45 minutes side by side in the middle. And all below it is the Negev. And down in the Negev is where all this took place. And down in the Negev on the west coast of the, the Negev along the Sea of Galilee, you have this little strip called Gaza. I think Gaza is like 25 miles wide or long. Um, I can't remember how how big it is. It's small. It's a very small place. Is it 25 miles? No, it can't be 25. 12 by, I think it may be like 12 miles by 25 miles. But 2 million people live in this very small space. Well, that's where they penetrated from. That's where they came from until now. I don't think I've heard much coming from the West Bank. A little bit up in the north. So up in the north above Israel is Lebanon, and that's where Hezbollah is housed, backed by Iran. And Hamas, by and large, exists down in the Gaza Strip, elsewhere, but primarily housed in the Gaza Strip. And so that's where, where this um, attack came from. So 1,500 fighters came through this coordinated process through the holes in the fence that they created into, and, and by, by uh, the hang gliders, into um, the Negev. Um, all while rockets were flying and falling. Last I heard it was 5,000 rockets, 7,000 rockets. Just to put into perspective, more rockets fell and continue to fall on that day and since then. Since uh, I, think, I think that was the greatest barrage of rocket fire in one day in world warfare history. I mean, put this into perspective. This little state, it's tiny. Israel's a tiny state. Again, two, Colorado, uh, two of them into Colorado. I think it's technically the size of... Of, of New Jersey. Um, population of Israel, by the way, is roughly 10 million and I think 9 million Jews or 8 point something million Jews and the rest are Israeli Arabs. So this is a tiny population. It's a tiny country. It's very condensed, pressure cooker. This is where it's happening. All these missiles are falling. Uh, Israel's Iron Dome, the defense system was overrun. It can only handle so much. So there was a through this coordinated attack, they launched um, into Israel proper all of these missiles. Iron Dome couldn't keep up. There's mayhem, and most of that, or a lot of that, was also cover for Hamas to penetrate. Well, they did. If you haven't read by now, the atrocities that have taken place are unprecedented. I would say in some ways they're even unprecedented by Nazi terms. You know, when we talk about the Nazis... We talk about at least, and I would never say at least for much about the Nazis, 
but at least they had enough humanity in them that at the very end, when they knew that they were about to lose the war, they started to cover up their atrocities, their, their evils. So they started to um, try and hide what they did. Hamas is exactly the opposite. Not only did they not hide the atrocities, they videotaped them. They have been on a social media campaign to share those videos, to promote them, to cause mayhem, to cause terror, fear, strike fear in the heart of the, uh, the Israelis. So this is, this is a whole new degree of evil, as we'll talk about. Um, a, a people who not only do what they do, but videotape it, have no qualms about it, don't try to hide it in the least. What did they do? They wreaked havoc. Anybody who tells you that this was about military, a military incursion, or politics, or past injustices, or current injustices we'll get into, is qualifying evil. And in life, there are times when it is black and white. One of the reasons why I don't talk about the Israel-Palestinian conflict is because usually it's not black and white. It's just not. I have friends on the right who say it is. I have friends on the left who say it is. Black or white, it's gray. Now, it doesn't mean this, the truth is always in the middle. Uh, you know, it leans left or leans right, depending on the issue. But this one is not that, which is why I'm talking about it, because I don't feel this is political. In fact, I feel it's being politicized and qualified and contextualized and explained away. And as we do that, to me, that is an immoral act and there are consequences to it. So I'm really sharing this with you as, as I'm working it through because um, there's a moral obligation for anybody who cares about morality, decency, right and wrong, good versus evil, and um, um, justice and accountability to understand what's going on and to share and to be a part of it in your way. And we'll talk about that as well. So what happened down in the Negev is indescribable and unforgivable. Um, the accounts are now at this point just beyond belief. I wrote down some of them. You can read about them in my blog. And whether you like Ben Shapiro, who's a conservative political commentator, you should watch his video on this particular issue because it is, not, it is apolitical. It is purely um, a factual basis and, an, and a moral call to the decent to watch, to witness. And we'll talk about that. But you can see that all on my blog. If you just go to defiantspirit.org uh, under the blog section, you'll see it. It's at the very bottom if you scroll down. Hard to watch, but important. Okay, so here's some of the things. I mean, I, I don't want to read through them. And I don't like gratuitous um, terrorist recounts. I don't like when when there's a shooter like here in america they say the person's name I, I think we should not glorify them or give them that posthumous victory I, I don't believe in talking about the these horrors and atrocities for sensational purposes but i do believe in this case it's important for us to talk about it to witness it to bear witness to it as an act of solidarity as the least we can do to pay tribute to those who have um, been so wrongly annihilated and desecrated, and um, we need to open our eyes to evil. So here are a few of the things. When you read about it, it's eerily reminiscent of the um, the Nazi death squads that were sent out to annihilate, to torture, and to persecute Jews. So Hamas, the group solely responsible for it, hunted down families. You know, this was not a f military campaign. They weren't going after military bases. They happened to um, uh, murder soldiers, but that was not their, their core intent. Quite clearly, by the carnage left behind, they hunted down kibbutzim and moshavim. These are not um, what we call settlements, or what the world calls settlements. The settlements usually have a connotation of, if not illegal to most people, questionable. I would argue that. It depends where they are and what they are and why they're there. But the bottom line, that's not these. This was not the West Bank. 
This was not Gaza. There are no Jews living in Gaza. There haven't been since 2005, since the Israeli government kicked out Jews. It is the only place in the world, by the way, that is Yudenrein, as the Nazis would say, that is Jew-free. You can live in Iran. There are still Jews in Iran. God help them. I have no idea why. There's not a country you can't live in as a Jew except Gaza. So this was not about them getting back Gaza. They have Gaza. They've destroyed Gaza. This was not about them entering into occupied territory. I use that word occupied because I don't think it's the appropriate term, but again, don't want to get political. This was them about this was them entering into Israel proper, into Moshavim and to Kibbutzim. These are we call them villages, you know, little towns at this point. They no longer have the socialist um, origins like we think of with kibbutz. Nonetheless, they're just ordinary people living the ordinary lives on a seemingly ordinary Sabbath, Shabbat, um, and Simchat Torah. And we found them dead at their breakfast tables. We found them uh, murdered, shot in their beds. We, the IDF has discovered um, entire families incinerated, trapped in their homes, just like the Nazis, locked in their homes while they were set on fire or set on fire to flesh them out. And then when they came out, they were shot dead. We have images of elderly women riddled with bullets, right? Just laying in pools of blood. I mean, this is not anything other than the extermination of Jews. They just found a couple days ago, 40 murdered babies in one kibbutz, in one little village. Some of them were decapitated. Many of them were dismembered. They were desecrated. I mean, it's it's inconceivable to murder a child, let alone four children, 40 children, let alone decapitating, let alone desecrating their bodies. Some of these people were set on fire while they were alive. One mother, a pregnant woman, had her fetus cut out of her, put next to her. I don't know yet if we know. God, I hope she was dead when this happened. But imagine if she wasn't, and there are many cases where people had to bear witness to the horror as well as experiencing it before dying. Her fetus was lying next to her um, when they found her. I, I feel sick even in telling you or repeating it, but it's our duty to feel sick and to face the horror and to bear the burden, as, as Viktor Frankl would say. Um, there was multiple um, accounts of rape, raping of women in front of their husbands in front of their families and um, I, you can see video of fathers shot in front of their families you can see video of children being uh, murdered being abducted there there's just it's you can't even describe the things we've heard now the recounting of it from parents whose children were ripped from their arms taken into the dregs of the Gaza Strip, they'll never be seen again. I will talk about that. But just to have witnessed and watched and know that your child is in this hellhole, God knows what's being done to them. Um, over 150 Israelis were abducted, most of them civilians, most of them women and children and elderly, Holocaust survivors, people who survived the horrors of the Nazis only to meet their end, at another version of the Holocaust, burned alive and shot. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and, and there are, again, 150, more or less, I don't know, hostages right now somewhere in the depths of Gaza in cages being raped. We have firsthand accounts. You can see some of this carnage. Um, children in cages and... One of the, and this will segue out of this and into the next conversation, one of the most horrific scenes I saw were Palestinian parents celebrating by passing out candy and dancing, almost their version of the horror, at the carnage left behind by the Hamas terrorists, celebrating with their children on their backs while they had Jewish children, literally. There's one scene where there's a Jewish child that just looks lost and in shock and terrified, surrounded by all these Palestinian grown-ups poking him and, 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 and persecuting him and yelling, who Allah Akbar? And this, what else, God knows what else they've done to this child while they're giving candy to theirs. Now, people say to me, B, you know, like, yes, what Hamas did is, is terrible. Not everybody's saying that, but the people I know are saying that. 
But what about all these innocent Palestinians? I, I hear you, and we're going to need to talk about that. But there is a complicit um, aspect to this. Uh, um, Palestinians vote. This is not a peer, only a terrorist organization. Hamas is the elected governing body of the Palestinians. Granted, they haven't had a another um, election since they're, they were newly elected, I think, in 2007, if memory serves me right. Nonetheless, they were elected. The Palestinian Authority was kicked out of power and Hamas took over. Israel pulled out of Gaza in 2005. Hamas set in and what did they do? They destroyed the Israeli homes that could have been used for Palestinians. They destroyed the infrastructure, greenhouses and all of the, the infrastructure. Um, they set forth on a war against Israel, even though they got 100% of their demands. Israel has taken better care of the Gazans than Hamas has. I am not suggesting that Israel is perfect. They're not. But Hamas has done more harm to, his, to Palestinian civilians than Israel ever could. Um, there is no infrastructure in Gaza because they've used all of the goods, all of the resources, the cement, the tunnels to build rockets, um, to build tunnels, not infrastructure, not water, not electricity. Israel has been pumping in water and electricity and sending in food for since 2006. They just turned it off because they have to, because they have to defend themselves. But the bottom line was Hamas is responsible for the horror and the terror of so much, not all of, the misery in the Gaza Strip. Um, we, we sent, the world sent them pipes to build water, uh, water infrastructure, and we found later on that those were the pipe, ca uh, the casings for the missiles that they were using to make for homemade rockets. The, the cement that the, the UN or whoever sent them was used to build these elaborate tunnels that are underground for one purpose only, and that is to abduct and murder Jews. So as we go into this, yes, the Palestinian people are victims, but they also have a complicit, complicity in this process. Not doesn't mean they're wholly to blame, but it does mean they have to take on some of the blame because um, they have allowed for this government to go on. They, Hamas has hidden their military caches, their weapons caches in, in, um, in schools. Their headquarters is underneath a hospital and it's deeply complicated. At the end of the day, Hamas is the true victimizer. Yes, many Palestinians are victims, but if you're passing out candy and if you're condoning, if you're not... Um, if you're not working with the authorities to help get the hostages back to Israel and a thousand other things that at some level you do have blood on your hands. At the end of the day, it is Hamas with blood on their hands. Now Israel has no choice but to go in and try and rescue its hostages. I don't imagine that's even a possibility knowing how densely populated uh, Gaza is, knowing how complicated that, that uh, infrastructure underneath what those tunnels are and knowing just how murderous this regime is, they will murder them before we, we get to them. But Israel has now a duty to go into this place and to eradicate evil one by one, house by house. Now, they need to do it as precise as possible. They're not carpet bombing. It looks like it on TV, but they are sending... Israel's the most moral air force in the history of military. This isn't my opinion. There are, there are many um, articles and experts out there who will you'll find the very same thing. Israel sends text messages to the Palestinians before they drop a bomb because they have to on a civilian population. Again, because that's where Hamas has chosen to put their military base or to house their leadership. They send text messages. They drop leaflets. They've created a, a bomb um, that it's drops and it rattles but it doesn't blow up and it warns that a bomb is about to come they give extraction maps and points to get to and then they bomb I mean, they're going to do a lot less of that this time because they have to it's going to be a lot less precise than it has in the past and there's going to be a lot of civilian palestinian bloodshed men women and children who are going to die but that is because hamas instigated 
what they were would hope to be a second Holocaust, an annihilation of, of Jews, and have given the Israelis no choice but to go in and both rescue their hostages and to root out evil. Israel probably would have just gone on indefinitely forever with the incursions, with the back and forth, and Hamas ultimately gave them no choice. And now they have to go in, and it's going to be as precise as possible, but it's, it's going to be door to door, but it's going to be ugly, it's going to be messy, and there's going to be a lot of carnage. But that, I guess that comes to where I really want to get to, which is who's, who has blood on their hands? Because I would have imagined that this would be much more morally clear to the world than it is. I just watched as the United Nations Security Council protested um, Israel, had a moment of silence for Palestinian civilians with total disregard for the over 1,000 dead Israelis, the 150 hostages that who knows God what is happening to them, the thousands of terror victims in Israel, and they had a moment of silence for the Palestinian civilians. They've taken sides. They condemned Israel. They've called for an end to the cycle of violence. This is not a cycle of violence, my friends. This is There's no cycle. This was unprovoked, unparalleled terror. This was Nazi-esque. We like to throw that term around. Like You listen in politics, people call each other Nazis. This is the problem, is now we've... we've um, emasculated this word. So when I say Nazi, this is actually the true definition of Nazi, the extermination of Jews. Take your least favorite Republican, your least favorite Democrat, put that Nazi label on them, and you've misappropriated that label. It should be used for one person and one person only, and that is someone who believes in the extermination of Jews. Well, that's what the UN Security Council is condoning, the extermination of Jews. That's what Harvard University and the 30 student groups that came out in support of Hamas and condemnation of Israel have said that they want the extermination of Jews. They didn't say extermination of Jews. They said it in Sydney. Did you see the protests in Sydney? The, the pro-Palestinian, quote-unquote, um, gatherings that turned into the chant, thousands of pro-Hamas is what it is, um, people gas the Jews, gas the Jews. And in London, I heard the same thing. In Canada, uh, I don't know if I heard gas the Jews, but I saw the same gatherings. So the Harvard group, 30 groups, come out in condemnation. And they believe they're more sophisticated than those um, Jew haters in Sydney. They're not. They're using sophisticated arguments that are straw men, that don't apply here. They've said that this, is ha this has happened because of historical grievances and justices, because of the treatment of Israel to the Palestinians, because of the history of Gaza and what's happening in Gaza. First of all, we can talk about that, and, I, and I'd be happy to talk about that. All of that is grotesque. That is, that is no different than if somebody's raped and they come to an authority figure and say, I've been raped, and the person says to them, you have a history of promiscuity, and you dress a certain way, and you you know, went to this man's house and you had a drink. What did you think? This is your fault. It is morally reprehensible in that situation. That's a micro version of this. There's no contextualizing murdering 40 babies. There's no rationalization or political uh, machinations back and forth of how that justifies dismembering a pregnant mother and pulling her fetus out to watch it die next to her. The moment we go down this, this, this ugly, slippery, moral slope, we have gone down into, in my opinion, hell. Because in life, there is good and there is evil. If you don't believe that, you're not a student of history. You're, you haven't heard about the Holocaust. 
You haven't heard about genocides. This was an attempted genocide. Now, some people will say, isn't that what Israel's doing to, um, to the people in Gaza? There's never been a recorded case of any of this barbarism by the IDF within the Gaza Strip. They have certainly killed civilians. They have never targeted civilians. They have certainly never gone through and killed an individual as payback, a civilian, a mother, a child, as any kind of justification or revenge or whatever. What's happening now in Gaza is not merely revenge. It's justice. It's um, retribution. It's consequence for terrorism. It's a message to the other Hamas and Hezbollah cells and um, nations that are looking on that want to exterminate Israel, that never again means never again. But there is no equivalent of the IDF to the Gazans or the Palestinians or even Hamas as there is to what Hamas just did to Israel. This is evil, pure and simple. Anybody who is out there at a pro-Palestinian rally right now is missing the point at best or is a conspirator calling for the annihilation of the state of Israel and the extermination of Jews. Always? No. In this situation, unequivocally and absolutely. Because those who are saying we are standing with Palestinians, you're not standing with Palestinians. First of all, Hamas has wreaked havoc upon Palestinians by what they have just done and by what they continue to do to use Palestinians as human shields. But secondly, what you're doing is you're condoning all of these examples and many more of what I just told you about, that's what you're condoning. You're condoning that. And when you want to go down the path of talking about the politics and the, you know, the, the geopolitical nature of the region and all of this stuff, it is not only disheartening, it is immoral. There is a time and there is a place to have these complicated, nuanced conversation. This is not the time. This is not the place. This is not that situation. Usually I don't talk about these things because they are gray, shades of gray. This one is black and white. Either you stand with goodness, you stand with people who are perfectly imperfect, the Israelis, um, absolutely unequivocally a democracy that's messy and that has a lot of explaining to do and that has, and has a history of making mistakes, but it's also a democracy with a process, with justice, with, um, with due process. Israel is not a perfect place, but there is a moral gulf between that and Hamas. Hamas is absolutely and unequivocally evil. And if we can't name what I just described and so much more as evil, then we become complicit. Then we are no different than the average ordinary German who said, don't see this, don't hear this, or worse yet, who come to condone it, who come to celebrate it, because what I saw in New York City was not pro-Palestinian. It was anti-Jew. Watch the videos. There's clapping. There's celebration when they describe these paragliders coming in and shooting unarmed dancers at a rave, at a, um, a dance celebration out in the desert. There's clapping. There's celebration. I've heard black groups come out in support of their brothers and sisters, Palestinian, who, by the way, are just as multi-ethnic as the Israelis. What about black Ethiopian Jews and, and a whole set of ethnicities that need support in Israel? But that's not even the point. Um, I heard LGBTQ has come out in support of Palestinians. Do you know if you're LGBTQ plus and you're in the Gaza Strip and they know that, that they'll shoot you? Do you know that if you're LGBTQ plus and you're in Tel Aviv, that they'll celebrate you? So before we start aligning ourselves with the underdog, remember, this isn't a sport. You're not choosing teams. You're not wearing their jersey when you wear the flag. What you are doing, at least in this moment with that Palestinian flag, is you're saying, we condone what Hamas has done. We are going to explain why. We're going to tell you why that chopping off the head of 40 babies is somehow explainable 
and in this case acceptable. You are condoning that, you are supporting that. When you are one of these Harvard elites and you are aligning yourself with a group that's finally going to take a stand with our, our underdog brothers and sisters in the Gaza Strip, our underdog brothers and sisters in the Gaza Strip because these Israelis have mistreated them for God knows how long. Do you understand that Hamas is destroying this people, not Israel? Israel has done the best they can with an organization and a government that calls for their annihilation. It says in the Hamas Charter that they exist to exterminate the Jews. How do you make peace with that? How do you make peace with a people that once you pull back, they destroy the infrastructure? There's not a Jew left in Gaza and that's not enough. How do you make peace with a people who constantly is bombarding you with rockets? How many rockets would Texas put up with if Mexico was shooting over thousands into Texas proper? A thousand dead Israelis is the equivalent of 60,000 Americans. How long would we put up with that for? 150 abducted children, young women. How long would we put up with? And what does that say about, um, about the people that we're dealing with? I, somebody said to me, yeah, but what about all of the abducted people sitting in prisons, in Israeli prisons? Abducted? Every single one of them has blood on their hands. Not a single person that was abducted by Hamas has blood on their hands. They were innocents. The people sitting in Israeli jails, jails are suspected or proven um, terrorists. They are apples and oranges. So how is Israel supposed to make peace with this? Israelis are liberals. They, they are they're some of the most liberal people I know, not anymore. They can't be. They're going to have to all become hawks when it comes to the Palestinian issue. The two-state solution is over. There will not be um, power given to people who want the annihilation of the Jewish people. So there's, I don't want to go down the path of politics. All I'm telling you is this is a morally black and white issue. This is not politics. This is not history. This is nothing other than good versus evil. It is black and it is white. There is no middle ground on some of these issues in life. I don't say that often. I'm a nuanced person. I was a pulpit rabbi for 15 years. You could not guess my politics. I was complicated. I'm still complicated. You're not going to pin me down to a party. You're not going to pin me down to a party line. My voting is on issues. It's all over the place. And that's why in 15 years of sermons, there wasn't one mention of politics, and there isn't one mention of politics now. This is not political. This is trying to both explain the moral clarity of a deeply, deeply evil situation. It is about explaining that there is no nuance in this situation. I've heard so many good intention people trying to explain or saying they didn't want to take sides because of all the history. It is time to take sides. You're not siding with Israel over the Palestinians. You're siding with morality versus immorality. You're siding with the monsters of Hamas, the totalitarian Nazi regime that wants the extermination of the Jewish people. And they've said as much. You're siding with the good people in Israel, the good people in America, the good people around the world, or as my teacher and mentor Viktor Frankl says, the decent. At the end of the day, as Frankl says, coming out of the Holocaust, there are only two races. Let's get over the black and the white and the brown conversations. There are two races. Let's get over the Muslim, Jew, Christian conversation. There are two races. Let's get over the American versus the... The, the Arab versus the Chinese conversation, there are two races. There's the decent and there's the indecent. And if something indecent happened in Gaza because of the Israelis, I would stand with whomever is on the side of decency. That is not this. Everything that happens from this point forward is blood on the hands of Hamas for everything I described and so much more. And if we, outside of Gaza and outside of Israel and outside of these pockets of 
hatred gathering in Times Square and in Sydney Opera House and in London City Center and here in Denver and in Los Angeles, if we stand by and we say nothing and we do nothing and we start equivocating and contextualizing and explaining, then at some point, my friends, there's blood on our hands. As it says in the Talmud, silence is assent. Not to choose is a choice. And to stand in silence in moments like this is not only wrong, is not only fomenting evil out in the world, but ultimately sends us and our spirit, our soul, our decency down the slippery slope to hell. There's a time in life to make a stand, and that stand is now. There is a moral divide. It is black and it is white. It is good and it is evil. I am not suggesting that all Palestinians are evil, and I'm not suggesting that all Israelis are good. What I am suggesting is it is time to stop, start looking past those labels and look to whether or not somebody is decent or are they indecent. And in this case, unequivocally, there can be no ifs, ands, or buts. Hamas is indecent, and they must be eradicated from the world. And that's what Israel's going to do. Thank you for sticking with me. It's the longest podcast I've ever done. If you have stuck with me, if you want to have more conversation, I'm happy to have it with you personally. Shoot me an email, b at defiantspirit.org. Reach out to me, leave a comment if it's in good taste um, and it's critical of the, of the comments of the conversation, I will put it up. And if we cross over into uh, mean-spirited or... Um, or Jew hatred, it won't go up because I have had those too. So I know the types of people who seek um, my presence and my thoughts are people who are seeking light and love and life in this. And that's all in, l'chaim, to life, because that's what this is about. May decent people everywhere find their way to the life, the love, and the life that they deserve. And may they shed that light out into the world for the rest of the world to... Um, to experience, to know. And may the, may the Israelis right now who are anguished, suffering um, beneath the, the city of Gaza, fighting for their lives, may they either be saved or may their life come to a quick and merciful end. May all of us, wherever we are, continue to fight the good fight, to fight for morality and for justice, to not lose compassion in our hearts for all victims everywhere. It is true. And I'll talk about that in my next, next podcast. But for now, thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being one of the decent. Thank you for listening to the Defiant Spirit Podcast with me, your host, Dr. Baruch Halevi. If you like what you heard, please consider leaving a five-star review and share this podcast with others. To learn more about the Defiant Spirit, get more inspirational content, or see how we might work together to live your Defiant Spirit, visit defiantspirit.org. Until then, take back your power and live your defiant spirit.